men, bienvenue, and welcome to The Musical Man, the podcast that shines new light on the Tony Award for Best Musical. Each week we examine the nominees and winners of that esteemed decoration, and this week we'll be discussing She Loves Me. Good day, madam. May I help you? Good day, madam. May I help you? Good day, madam. May I help you? I would like to see a face like yours cracked. But we carry. Do you have a cream for cherry red skin? Oh, I see what you mean. You will look enchanting. Prime lips. Glamorous as gobble. Big mouth. I would recommend a bath today. On sale, did you say? Put a little lipstick on your nose twice. Morning and evening. And a little brush for combing Absolutely. Wrap it up and send it. Thank you so much. Is there something else before you go? Yes. But first, how are we doing? I hope this episode of The Musical Man finds you well. We have a lot to talk about in this opening segment. First and foremost, I want to welcome Benny back. Oh, Benny, we missed you so much. We really did. It's not the same without the three musketeers all together. Yes, I'm adopting a silly voice because I don't know how to process my emotions right now. <laughs> I really did. I missed you, Benny. I am so glad that you are back with us. Oh, it's it's great to have you back. Am I the only person? I have a question to pose to our listeners. Am I the only person in the world who was not aware of these Times Square show globes? These giant art installations that are gigantic snow globes, but they're known as show globes because they represent various Broadway productions. And apparently a Dear Evan Hansen show globe is being prepped, and I am fascinated by this idea. The idea of a wax figure of Evan Hansen inside a gigantic snow slash show globe waving out at us is just the strangest idea in the world, and I cannot wait to see the final product. A wicked show globe, that's one thing, but a Dear Evan Hansen show globe? What are we going to do next? A jagged little pill show globe? Is that really the festive decoration that we think it's going to be? I don't know. I'm skeptical. Okay, I just wanted to pose that question, and now I have a directive. I had a question, and now I have a directive. I direct you, my dear listener, to go to our Twitter profile, twitter.com slash musicalmanpod. Find the Playbill article I linked to It's all about the new national tour for An Officer and a Gentleman, The Musical. And when you go to that Playbill article, there is a video embedded in it. And I want you to watch that video because it is the craziest, most awful bit of promotional material I have seen for a piece of theater in quite some time. This is a tour that is beginning in Vegas, I believe. It's going to 60 different cities across the United States. Chicago, I should say, is not one of them. New York City is not on the tour. But this video is wild between the set pieces and the staging and the the wigs. 
Ha! What is going on? Do we not know how to make a wig for a woman in the year of our Lord 2021? Does every wig have to look like a Sharpay or a Shih Tzu sitting atop some poor woman's head? We do not need to be doing this to people. We just need to let women have their natural hair at this point if we can't give them decent wigs. I don't know. Watch the video. Judge for yourself. Maybe you think to yourself, I can't wait to see it. Honestly, if it was coming to Chicago, I would probably go out of my way to see it for the sake of our Patreon feed, patreon.com slash musicalmanpod. Ah, but it's not coming to Chicago, so I have no option. Oh, that's unfortunate. Now, let's shift gears because I do want to take a moment to honor Leslie Brucuse, who passed away recently. Rest in peace, Leslie Brucuse, who was born in 1952 and passed away in this year of our Lord, 2021. I don't mean to be glib. I have the utmost respect for Leslie Brucuse whose theater credits include Jekyll and Hyde with Frank Wildhorn, Victor Victoria with Henry Mancini, and Stop the World, I Want to Get Off with Anthony Newley. Film and television credits for Leslie Brucuse include Dr. Doolittle with Rex Harrison, Scrooge, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, Babes in Toyland, Tom and Jerry the Movie, and The Land Before Time 14, Journey Through the Mists. Brucuse also wrote a 1976 TV musical version of Peter Pan, co-wrote Can You Read My Mind with John Williams for the 1978 film Superman, ever heard of it, and was involved with the creation of not one, but two James Bond themes, Goldfinger and You Only Live Twice. Brucuse was a titan, and while his work will be forever cherished, he will be sorely missed. Before we wrap up this opening segment, I do have a quick follow-up regarding Wicked our most recent subject here on the main feed. A couple of follow-ups, actually. Two. One, two. Okay, here's the first one. I forgot to mention how Chris, my husband, my hubby, would love to see Harvey Firestein as the Wizard of Oz in Wicked. Harvey Firestein was his number one choice, and I believe it's a fantastic idea. We wanted to make sure that was put on the record. Now, number two. Here's the second follow-up. Regarding making good, the piano line from that bonus track reminds me of the soundtrack for a little video game you might be familiar with, dear listener. It's known as The Sims. Specifically, Making Good made me think of Building Mode 3. Patty, Benny, can we actually put those two songs, those two pieces of music, I should say, up against each other? Let's see how they compare. Right now I'm their prey. Right now I'm their quarry. But there'll come a day they all will be sorry And sorry will be all that they deserve Right now I'm their prey, right now I'm their quarry but there'll come a day they all will be sorry And sorry will be all that they deserve Hopefully 
hopefully you hear what I hear and you agree with me. If you don't agree with me, well, keep it to yourself. It's time for the show facts regarding this week's subject, She Loves Me. Show me the show facts, Jonathan. Okay, I will. Let's do it. Let's go. She Loves Me was a 1964 nominee for the Tony Award for Best Musical. The show opened on April 23rd, 1963 at the Eugene O'Neill Theater and ran for 301 performances. The book was written by Joe Masteroff, and it is based on Miklos Lazlo's 1940 play Parfumery, which by 1963 had already been adapted twice for the silver screen. Margaret Sullivan and Jimmy Stewart starred in The Shop Around the Corner in 1940, while Judy Garland and Van Johnson led the 1949 musical In the Good Old Summertime. Nora and Delia Efron's 1998 comedy You've Got Mail is also based on parfumery, so the chances of anyone not being familiar with the general plot are slim. All things considered, one might assume Lazlo's play is a popular standard in America, but parfumery was not produced in English until 2004, when a newly discovered translation was staged by the University of Illinois. This translation was included as part of a donation to the university's rare book and special collections library, which is pretty neat, if you ask me. The music of She Loves Me was written by Jerry Bach. The lyrics were written by Sheldon Harnick. The director was Harold Hal Prince. Hello again, Hal. Musical director, Harold Hastings. Orchestrations, Don Walker. Choreographer, well, we have a musical staging by credit. We love those. Musical staging by Carol Haney. Scenic design, William and Jean Eckhart. Lighting design, William and Jean Eckhart. Sound design, N.A. No sound designer this time around. Costume design, Patricia Ziprot. And the original Broadway cast was as follows. This is the whole kit and caboodle. Barbara Baxley, Jack Cassidy, Barbara Cook. Hello, Barbara. Daniel Massey, Ludovic Donoff, Nathaniel Frey, Ralph Williams, Trude, Trude Adams. Hello, Trude. Bob Bishop, Gino Conforti, Pepe DeChaza. What a great name, Pepe DeChaza. Hal DeCio, Marion Delano, Jetty Herlick, Jack Lee, Vicky Mansfield, Les Martin, Peg Murray, Wood Romoff, Joe Ross, Judy West, and Joe Wilder. Let's go back to Wood Romoff. What a great first name. Wood? Tony Nuts. Okay, let's do it. She Loves Me won the Tony Award for Best Featured Actor in a Musical, which went to Jack Cassidy, and it was additionally nominated for the following Tony Awards. Best Musical, of course, but also Best Direction of a Musical, Harold Prince, Best Producer of a Musical, Harold Prince, and Best Author of a Musical, Joe Masteroff. So, five nominations in total, only one award at the end of the evening, but one is better than none, I suppose. One is better than none! It is now time for us to discuss the plot of She Loves Me. The show is set in Budapest, Hungary in the summer of 1934. That is when we begin, at least. The staff of Marichek's Parfumery gather in the early morning for another day of work. The assistant manager, George, confides in one of his clerks, a quiet family man by the name of Sipos. George has been writing to and receiving letters from an anonymous woman for several weeks, each one signed with an affectionate nom de plume. 
dear friend. Sipos finds he is both befuddled and excited by the situation. Mr. Marachek, the owner of the perfumery, advises George to settle down and get married. After all, George, you cannot be a bachelor forever. You are not a young man, after all. Teenage delivery boy Arpad Laszlo arrives at the shop to deliver a shipment of leather musical cigarette boxes. Mirachek believes the boxes will sell like hotcakes, but George isn't nearly as confident. They make a bet. If a box is sold within the next hour, George will owe Mirachek ten smackaroonies. Moments later, Amalia Balish appears, looking for work. George insists they are not hiring, but when Amalia manages to sell one of the cigarette boxes, Mirachek hires her on the spot. How did Amalia sell the box? By rebranding it as a musical candy box. The tune serves to remind us we should never eat too much candy. No more candy, uh-uh-uh. We fly through autumn and into the winter of 1934. Everyone is in a terrible mood. Shop clerks Alona Ritter and Stephen Kodai have been maintaining a not-so-secret affair for some time, and they are currently on the outs. George and Amalia are constantly butting heads, while Mirachek has developed an intense and inexplicable dislike for George. The only source of happiness in George's life are the letters from his his dear friend, who is, unbeknownst to him, Amalia. What a twist! Arpad and Sipos observe George and Amalia's bickering from afar. They conclude the so-called rivals actually like each other, but they resolve to keep this theory to themselves. Amalia pulls Alona aside to reveal she will meet her dear friend in person for the first time at 8 o'clock sharp. She will bring a copy of Anna Karenina and Rose so he may identify her. George pulls Sipos aside to reveal he will meet his dear friend in person for the first time at 8 o'clock sharp. She will bring a copy of Anna Karenina and a rose so he may identify her. Hold on, what's this? Marachek wants everyone to stay late and decorate the shop for Christmas. Amalia manages to slip away, insisting she has an appointment she cannot miss. George makes the same request of Marachek and is rejected outright. Right. George resigns, having grown tired of Marachek's abuse. I do not blame him. While decorating, the sleazy yet suave Kodai begins to woo Alona, and the pair arrange a late-night liaison. But when Marachek suddenly decides to close up the shop, Kodai tosses Alona aside to keep a date he had previously canceled. A deeply perturbed Alona vows to never again put her faith in a man like Kodai. Meanwhile, George asks Sipos to deliver a letter to his dear friend, one that will explain why he cannot see her. Sipos agrees, and they head for the Café Imperial, where our dear friends have arranged to meet. The perfumery is now empty, save for Marachek. There is a knock at the door. Knock, knock, knock. Why, it's a private investigator. The investigator reports that Marachek's wife has been sleeping with one of his employees. Marachek had assumed the scoundrel was George, but this is not the case. The philandering culprit is none other than Kodai. The investigator exits. Marachek retrieves a gun, aims it at his head, and pulls the trigger as Arpad appears to bear witness. Now, Mr. Marachek, now! 
Bang! Smash cut. The Café Imperial. Sipos and George are surprised when they spy Amalia from across the room. She has a rose and a copy of Anna Karenina. She is the dear friend. George takes a seat at Amalia's table, which causes her to panic. Go away, George. I am waiting for someone. This is a very crucial night for me. George does not budge. Instead, he torments Amalia with the grisly tale of a woman who was murdered by her blind date. In retaliation, Amalia gives George the dressing down of the century, cursing him to a mediocre lifetime of selling shampoo. A fight ensues, George leaves in a huff, and Amalia is left to wonder why her dear friend never showed up. Act 2. Marichek, having survived his suicide attempt, is recovering at a hospital. Arpad pays him a visit, making sure to point out how much he has done to keep the perfumery afloat. Marichek is impressed and promotes Arpad to the position of assistant sales clerk. George enters and quickly comes to terms with Marichek, who begs him to return to the shop. George agrees. Wonderful, George. Oh, wonderful. Oh, uh, George, one more thing. If you could also fire that stinking rat bastard, Kodai, it would really help me out. Thank you in advance. While speaking with Marichek, George learns Amalia is sick and unable to come to work. Feeling exceptionally guilty, George pops by her apartment to see how she is doing. Amalia is not happy to see him. Have you come to spy on me, George? You don't believe I'm sick, do you? Well, I'll show you. I'll go to work. Come hell or high water! George puts a hysterical Amalia back in bed and presents her with a peace offering, a pint of vanilla ice cream. Amalia is touched. She tells George about her dear friend Fiasco, and he apologizes for making the evening even worse. He then goes on to lie, claiming an old, fat, bald man standing outside the cafe asked him to break a date with Amalia. He had to go away on business. Amalia is obviously disappointed to learn her dear friend is an old, fat, bald man, but she vows to give him a chance anyway. After all, it's what's inside that counts. George bids her adieu. While attempting to write another dear friend letter, Amalia discovers she cannot stop thinking about her co-worker. Perhaps George isn't so bad after all. Sure, he's been crummy in the past, very crummy crummy, but he did bring her ice cream. George, for his part, is convinced Amalia Amalia has fallen in love with him. George is weird. He's taking a leap. Kodai is fired and makes a melodramatic spectacle of himself before leaving the perfumery forever. Alona is happy to see him go, as she recently met a nice optometrist named Paul at the library. Kodai may have been hot stuff, but Paul is the sort of man you marry, and Alona is dead set on marrying Paul. Christmas draws near and the shop becomes busier than ever. Amalia tells George she has invited her dear friend to have dinner at her mother's house. She invites George to come along as well, insisting it would help calm her nerves. And though he accepts, the idea fills him with dread. What if everything were to go wrong all over again? What if I told the story about the woman who was murdered on her blind date again? I, <laughs> I could very well see myself doing that. Ah, the triumphant return of Marichek to the parfumery fills the building with holiday cheer. 
Sadly, everyone already has plans and cannot spend the evening with him. Everyone that is except Arpad. Marachek is elated. Arpad, my boy, this is destiny. Tonight we shall light up the town. Amalia heads for the door, her arms laden with Christmas packages. One of them is a musical cigarette box, and when the packages are spilled, it begins to play its signature tune. <laughs> George helps Amalia to gather her things. The cigarette box, as it turns out, is intended as a gift for her dear friend. George confesses that he wishes he could be the recipient, as the box would always remind him of the day he met Amalia. He then takes a letter from his pocket and begins to read it aloud. Amalia is overwhelmed. This is one of the letters she wrote, which means George has been her dear friend all along. Love, as they say, is in the air. Now you might be wondering, why did Marachek hire a private investigator in the first place? Were you confused by that point? Let me clarify what led him to believe his wife was having an affair with George. Here's the answer. Allow me to clarify. I'm doing it. <laughs> <laughs> you see, Marachek received an anonymous letter in the mail which accused Mrs. Marachek of sleeping with a member of his staff. Marachek suspected George because George had dinner with the Maracheks on several occasions. No one else from the shop has ever come over for dinner. George must be plugging Mrs. Marachek. Of course, Mr. Marachek's suspicions were misplaced, but who wrote the anonymous letter in the first place? That's the more important question. Why it was none other than Sipos. Sipos knew all about Kudai and Mrs. Marachek, but because he did not name names in the letter, the situation became hopelessly confused and complicated. Sipos relays all of this information to George in the second act and apologizes for the gross misunderstanding. I've learned my lesson, George, believe you me. Next time, I will name names. Sipos is a snitch, y'all. He is a snitch. Watch yourself around him, okay? For the purposes of this week's episode, I listened to the 1963 original Broadway cast album of She Loves Me, which features Daniel Massey as George and Barbara Cook as Amalia. I watched a 1979 BBC TV broadcast of the show, which stars Robin Ellis as George and Gemma Craven as Amalia. Gemma Craven, not Gemma Craven, I believe. I referred to her as Gemma in our most recent episode of M3, The Movie Musical Man, now available via patreon.com slash musicalmanpod. I'm just saying. I then went on to listen to the 1993 Broadway revival cast album, which stars Boyd Gaines as George and Judy Kuhn as Amalia. I then listened to the 1994 London revival cast album, which stars John Gordon Sinclair as George and Ruthie Henshaw as Amalia. And I also, of course, listened to to the 2016 Broadway revival cast album, which stars Zachary Levi as George and Laura Bonatti as Amalia. I then went on to watch, <laughs> this is the final source, I swear, I watched the 2016 Broadway revival video capture. The recording of that production, which I believe was screened in theaters at a certain point, it is now available via Broadway HD. I watched it via a daily motion upload, and let me tell you, that was not the best option. The video and audio progressively got more and more and more out of
of sync. It was very distracting. It was not the best format. I confess. Oh, goodness. Now, all of that said, I don't understand why Zachary Levi was screaming his way through most of the dialogue. That was a little off-putting. Why is Arpad always lurking in the balcony of this set like a fucking vulture? He's always watching everything like a fucking teenage phantom of the opera. Very unsettling. Ugh. I did not actually get a lot out of that revival. I know a lot of people really love it. Jane Krakowski is the best part of it, and she will get her due in this episode, believe you me. But other than that, I was surprised by how unimpressed I was by this production overall. Okay, so we should give a shout out to the 1977 concert production of She Loves Me, which starred Barry Bostwick, aka Brad, from the Rocky Horror Picture Show as George, and the late great Madeline Kahn as Amalia. Ooh, manja, manja. I bet Khan killed as Amalia. Khan! We should also give a shout out to the movie version of She Loves Me that never made it off the ground. This was developed in the 60s and it was to be directed by Hal Prince before being handed to none other than Blake Edwards, if you can believe it. Julie Andrews and Dick Van Dyke were set to star as Amalia and George, respectively. They were on track to actually reunite for the first time since Mary Poppins, but a change in management at the studio stopped the project in its tracks. It's probably for the best, as Blake Edwards' arch-salty style is not really in keeping with the show's wholesome, unironic spirit. Am I mischaracterizing Blake Edwards here? Truth be told, I've only seen a few of his films. I could be wrong! Before we begin our deconstruction of the score, I want to level two major criticisms against She Loves Me. Number one, I was surprised and disappointed to find that after nearly five and a half decades, this week's subject is still joking about old, bald, and fat people as if they are the universally accepted baseline definition of unattractive. I'm not saying we should scrub every prejudice out of these characters, but there will be fat people in your audience, and old people, and bald people. Do they deserve to be sneered at while trying to enjoy a romantic musical comedy? It's a question that maybe you might want to consider if you're mounting this show. This flaw struck me particularly hard during the 1979 BBC broadcast when a tormented George asks Sipos to evaluate his dear friend. Quote, she's old, isn't she? Old and ugly, fat. Quote, this isn't funny. I do not enjoy watching traditionally attractive musical theater ingenues sneer at anyone who does not look exactly like them. And yes, Amalia expresses a modicum of guilt when it comes to her superficial prejudices, but that doesn't bring balance to the force, does it? Stop making fat jokes, we should. Hiya! An adorable baby I was at one time. It's a bad impression. What do you want from me? I don't know how to do a Yoda. Number two, are we ever, ever going to allow a person of color to play any of these characters, any of them? Because from what I can tell, there hasn't been a single non-white actor to appear in any major production, I'm talking Broadway or West End, of She Loves Me. The 2016 Broadway revival boasted a cast of 18 and 
everyone was white, including every member of the ensemble. If I am wrong, I will gladly own up to it. Please correct me, but it's safe to say the history of this musical has been overwhelmed with whiteness. If anyone were to counter this criticism by pointing out the setting, I would laugh in their face. The fact that She Loves Me takes place in Budapest in the 1930s has never affected how the show is presented to audiences. Across five separate iterations. The only characters who semi-consistently had accents were Mr. Marachek and Alona, and of those two, only Marachek sounded vaguely Hungarian. Alona is always depicted with a working-class accent, a soft cockney, or a lilt that puts her in league with Adelaide from Guys and Dolls, or Lena Lamont from Singing in the Rain. Everyone else speaks with their natural accents because no one has ever cared about the these characters sounding Hungarian. So if we've never been concerned with maintaining that level of verisimilitude, we should not be casting a ton of white people because the show takes place in Budapest in the 1930s. That is utterly preposterous logic. I mean, 18 white people? You have to work really hard to make that happen. Most colleges and high schools do a better job of thinking outside of the white supremacy box. Eh, you can't put all of the blame on She Loves Me, Jonathan. This is a problem that affects every corner of Broadway history. Oh, I'm aware. Thank you very much for pointing that out. Good morning, good day. Isn't that a beautiful sky? What a perfect sample of summer weather. It's too nice a day to be indoors counting out change. What a waste of holiday weather all together. Let's all run away. Wouldn't it be something if we all took off from work? Leaving Mr. Marichek without a single clerk. Why not have a picnic? I could bring my wife's preserves. Champagne might be nice with holidays. It's too nice. And we'll all be out of a job. If it costs that much to get suntanned, I'll stay untanned. Pale but solvent. A picnic. A picnic. Oh, well. Imagine the sort of working environment where you plan a picnic with your co-workers. These people may not be the best of friends, but no one is being treated with open contempt throughout Good Morning, Good Day, and I aspire to that level of workplace camaraderie. Personal story time with the musical man. I played Arpad Laszlo in a summer dinner theater production of She Loves Me under the banner of Northern Kentucky University. They told me I had to ride a bike, and the designer of our podcast logo, dear friend Alex Green, fondly recalls watching me crash into things on several occasions. I'm riding my bike, crash. I'm riding my bike, crash, crash. I'm riding my bike, crash, crash. I'm riding my bike crash. I never learned how to ride a bike as a kid, you see. You see the problem here. So this was a supreme challenge. Our pad has to know how to ride a bike, right? He's a delivery boy. He talks 
talks about how much he loves his bike. He wants a motorcycle for Christmas. Spoiler alert, our black box theater was tiny, teeny tiny, and I did not wind up riding the bike, not really. I put a pinch of momentum behind the bike, drifted for less than two seconds, and came to an immediate stop. So you can imagine my resentment when Nigel Rathbone from the 1979 BBC broadcast hopped on his bike and proceeded to do literal circles around the cast while singing his heart out, riding his bike and singing at the same time? That's the kind of thing they made me think I was going to have to do. Oh, you definitely have to learn how to ride the bike, Jonathan. Do I? Anyway, I was a wonderful Arpad Laszlo, if I may say myself. Uh-oh, people, I am tooting my horn. My horn sounds like this. Beep, boop, boop, boop. It was the summer of 2007. And I was still riding the high of playing Ryan Evans in a thoroughly dreadful staging of High School Musical. Young! Strong! Oh, I was something in days gone by. Say, speaking of which, let's hear a little bit of days gone by. Mr. Marachek, I haven't been to a dance hall in years. I know what you bachelors are like. Remember, George, I was once one myself. And what a bachelor. Young, strong, oh, I was something in days gone by. With some girl who just happened to catch my eye. Slim, straight, light on my feet, shoes just skimming the ground. One, two, three, one, two, three, follow the beat around, around, around. All night circling the floor till dawn lit up the sky. No one younger than I in days gone by. And then I met Mrs. Marachek, and ever since I've danced only with her. I bet you think that's incredible. No. It's wild to consider Marachek only has one song, that being Days Gone By, which you just heard, when nearly every other character in this show is supplied with a cornucopia of material, a buffet. Let's take a look at the math. In the original Broadway production, Amalia is prominently featured in no less than eight songs. Those songs being No More Candy, three letters, I Don't Know His Name, Will He Like Me, Mr. Novak, Will You Please? Dear Friend, Where's My Shoe, and Ice Cream. Of course, Barbara Cook was an established icon of the stage well before 1963, so it stands to reason Bach and Harnick would want to put her on a pedestal whenever possible. George has four major numbers, three letters, Tonight at Eight, Tango Tragique, and She Loves Me. To be fair, Tango Tragique was cut in the wake of the original production, a point we will explore further in a moment, and so one could argue George's final tally is actually three. But I have chosen to focus on the 1963 original Broadway production for the purposes of these calculations, and so I say George has four songs. Four. Alona comes up from behind with three, I don't know his name, I resolve, and a trip to the library. Kodai has two, Alona, and Grand No. 
knowing you. Sipos and Arpad have one song apiece, those being Perspective and Try Me. But Perspective is a comedic sandbox, and Try Me has the benefit of opening Act 2 with a zing. Sipos and Arpad may only have a solitary pair of songs between them, but they count by God, they count, they count if you make them count, I should say. If you're playing Marichek, Days Gone By is all you have. A nice, pleasing, tiny, teeny, tiny song that clocks in at something like two minutes and change. There ain't a lot of meat on the bone, from an actor's perspective, and once Days Gone By has passed, Marichek never sings again. That blows. With nearly 30 numbers, She Loves Me is a beast of a score. It used to be even beefier, if you can believe it. Bach and Harnick cut 45 minutes of music while on the road to New York City. So, considering that, it stands to reason we could make a few more snips, right? Here is my modest proposal. Cut Goodbye George and Where's My Shoe? And fill some of that space with a sad reprise reprise of Days Gone by. I want to hear Marichek sing a sad reprise, reprise, of Days Gone By while he is loading his gun. How does this not already exist in the show? Marichek took tremendous pride in his marriage. He thought of it as a foundation that could never be broken, and now he finds himself falling through space. Imagine, if you will, Marichek in his office, overwhelmed with existential dread and despair. He reaches for the gun while singing all night, circling the floor, click, till dawn lit up the sky, click, no one younger than I in days gone. The gun is now aimed at Marichek's head. Arpad walks into the room, Mr. Marichek, no! Blackout, gunshot, bang! You're telling me that isn't impactful? We sort of get a version of this in Act 2 of the 2016 Broadway revival, but the execution is half-hearted at best. Marichek blandly singing to himself while reclining in his hospital bed. Yawn, snooze fast! My idea is better! The 1979 BBC broadcast chose to cut Days Gone By completely, thereby relegating its Marichek, Derek Smith, to the status of a non-singer in a musical. Malarkey, I say. Malarkey on toast! To rip Days Gone By out of the score is to commit a grave disservice to the story. This is our only opportunity to see Marichek at his best. We should experience him as an avuncular figure before he takes a bitter turn, because if we are not given that chance, the turn will mean nothing to us, almost nothing to us. Oh, the old guy is mean now? Uh, okay, fine. Do not force us to care less about your characters. I am only one of several in the rather small perfumery, which is only one of several in the city. Which is one of many cities in this country, which is only one of many countries which are on this continent, which is only one of seven on this not-so-special planet, which is one of many in our solar system, which is only one of many solar systems in this vast and inconceivable affair that is the universe. So in this in 
infinite, incomprehensible scheme. If a dot called Marichek should scream at a speck called Sepals, what on earth does it matter? That's all right with me. Here's my rule. Never disagree. Where's my pride? Swallowed long ago. Deep inside, where it doesn't show. Just maintain a true perspective. And it's easy to avoid a clash of wills. Just maintain a true perspective. And make sure you're well supplied with stomach pills. Let me put it bluntly. I'm a coward with a wife and children to support. Actually, my creed is short and simple. Five essential words, George. Do not lose your job. I do not blame Sipos for reducing himself to the status of a grub. Whatever edges Sipos once had have now been worn down by the relentless waves of life, and perspective is a testament to his experience. We mean nothing, George, nothing! If there is a god, he left us to wriggle and scream at the stars long ago. Mr. Marachek is our god now, and woe to thee who doth upset his apple car! If Mr. Marachek put his boot on my cock and told me to bleat like a ram, I would not hesitate for an instant. Does my wife respect me? No. Do my children respect me? No. Does my mother respect me? She spits into my mouth when I sleep, George. But I am the breadwinner. I win the bread, and they cannot take that away from me. They take the actual bread from me. They take it right out of my hands, George. They do, but you know what? mean anyway what else is new come with me Someone, please tell me who, like some divine, divining rod, it points straight to you. <laughs> Remember, Ilona, those sunny nights we knew before, if you just say the word, upon the Christmas tree. This is where I came in, amen. The fox and the chicken are a team again.
am, of course, quite fond of the lioness growl power notes ripping through Kadai's first solo, a schmoozy, schmeery, and altogether schlocky ode to the one and only Alona. But I chose to play the 2016 recording of Alona because of the inimitable Jane Krakowski, who single-handedly rescued that revival from becoming a footnote. Oh, stop that. How could you say that? How could he say that? Laura Benatti was a part of that revival, and she was glorious. She's doing her job, okay, people? She's fine. But we're not talking about Benatti. We're talking about Krakowski, baby. Krakowski. Picking up what Krakowski is putting down is not difficult. Her take on the character is that Alona is always horny on Maine, no exception. She is barking like a mad sea lion throughout most of Kodai's seduction. Oh, oh, oh! She is yelling at and spanking her own butt as if it has a mind of its own. You stop that, my butt. Oh, you stop that. You stop twerking this instant. Ooh, you naughty, my butt. Side note, when I sang, if it were only up to me, guess who I would hang up on the Christmas tree? I pantomimed hanging myself from a noose on the word hang. Hang. It had a really nice pop to it, and I got a laugh every single time. My R-pad wasn't fucking around. My R-pad wasn't some dumb kid, okay? He had witnessed crimes right in front of his beautiful face? On the flip side, Krakowski infuses I resolve with a laudable amount of all-too-real heartache. Most actors would be operating at a 10 from the moment this number began, but Krakowski is patient. She is building something here. She is starting out as a crumpled waif done wrong before graduating to the status of Amazon warrior. I am alone. I hear me roar. Why am I talking about this performance when we haven't even heard it yet? Let's hear it, Patty Benny! I resolve not to be so stupid. Will you keep Monday night open for me, darling? I resolve not to play these games. All right, sweetheart. How often I've been a sitting duck for Cupid. Shoot me down in flames. Sweetheart, say it's all right. I resolve not to be so trusting. It's high time, time that I awoke. Whatever I've got up here, it's up here rusting. My feminine intuition is a joke. I must be cousin to a cat. I always wind up with a rat. I'm through with momentary thrills. I find I can't afford the bill. I resolve, come what may, I will not be this girl one more day. What did I tell you? Magnificent. I cannot wait to see Krakowski as Lily St. Regis in NBC's Annie Live. Now let's shift gears and get back that loving feeling with a romantic atmosphere. Butterfingers do that again. That's the end of your career. How do you do, sir? How do you do, madam? Don't you know we tried to preserve our romantic atmosphere? Good to see you again, Mr. List. 
That's what all our patrons expect. So every jarring note will be ruthlessly checked. Gently does it try to preserve our romantic hat. Must Think of all the love affairs we assist. What more noble calling is there than ours? Tending each new beautiful bud of love, making sure each delicate seedling flowers. Treat each tryst and rendezvous as your own, bearing in mind the gravity of your task. These lovers want is one shining hour. Is that such a terrible unrest? Shh! Look around and see for yourself the romantic atmosphere. Victor? Stephanie. That's what all our patrons demand. That's the reason why they're here. Victor! Hugo. A romantic atmosphere is a bit of an odd duck when you take a macro look at the She Loves Me score. For the vast majority of the runtime, our characters exist within relatively small and intimate spaces. Whether it be the perfumery, Amalia's one-room apartment, or Marachek's room at the hospital, the world typically has to come to them if any action is to take place. But this is not the case with the Café Imperial. Our characters have to venture into the wider world and beyond their comfort zones to reach this location, and though the cafe is advertised as small and intimate, it proves to be anything but intimate. Liaisons are taking place here, love blooms and withers and dies here on a nightly basis. It definitely feels odd when the show widens its scope like this for the sake of this one sequence, almost as if we are drifting into another musical entirely before eventually circling back to She Loves Me. But there's a lot of loopy energy here, and I am down for it. Generally, the head waiter character that we are introduced to at the cafe is a lunatic. He's the best. He's Frank Nelson on steroids. Butter fingers, do that again. That's the end of your career. With any luck, this is the character I will be playing in 20 years. God knows I could never out ham Peter Bartlett from the 2016 Broadway revival as his take on the head waiter is positively demented. It is too much. And when I am saying, when I am saying it's too much, you know it's too much. Regarding the 2016 Broadway revival, oh goodness, okay, yeah, Chris wanted to make sure that I pointed this out. There is some bouncing menu choreography. The ensemble has these gigantic menus up in front of their own faces and they are bouncing with the menus. It's a type of dancing, I suppose. Ha, ha, ha. And it is absurdly generic and bad. It filled Chris with a palpable, fiery embarrassment. Ooh, he was embarrassed to be watching a musical. <laughs> I don't blame him. Bob Fosse did not live and sweat and die for us to sit through this tripe. Is this Bach and Harnick's She Loves Me or Purina Dog Chow's 101 Dalmatians, the musical? This is a question we have to ask.
ask ourselves. Try harder! After making my way through four cast albums over the last few days, what I wanted more than anything out of A Romantic Atmosphere was the confirmation of non-straight people. The existence of non-straight people. I wanted a confirmation. We already know men named Victor and Hugo are skulking about the cafe, so why not pair them up at a cozy table for two? I had faith the 2016 Broadway revival would grant my wish, but they only wink at the existence of gay people. You know who did not wink at the existence of gay people? The BBC in 1979. A lesbian couple is positioned front and center throughout their staging of a romantic atmosphere. And let me tell you, these women are fascinating. They are brooding like rare gothic oil portraits. They are bathed in shadow and smoke. They are serving Greta Garbo, I want to be alone, realness. The busboy may regard them as horrifying elder things from a Lovecraft novel, but the head waiter, who is himself very gay, swiftly reprimands the busboy. These lesbians deserve a romantic atmosphere. Let them eat and drink and slap the hell out of each other in peace. One of the lesbians deadass slaps her lover. I'm not kidding. These women have a backstory that could fill a fucking shiver robe. Miss Balish, is it possible you've never even met this man? I don't wish to discuss it with you, Mr. Novak. I'll tell you of a lonely girl I knew. Her story, I fear, is tragic to hear. Nevertheless, it's true. Her downfall, as I now recall, began. When her lonely hearts club found her a lonely man. She sat down and wrote. He answered her note. And now there was no retreat. They felt it was time to meet She told him to wear a rose boutonniere So she'd know that he was he And he was to look for one certain book Inside which a rose would be From that day she was never seen around we searched high and low, but search as we would, only a trace was found. Her left leg floating in a local brook. We never could find the rest of her book. I made an earlier reference to Tango Tragique and how it was cut from She Loves Me in the wake of the original Broadway run, but that's not entirely true. The 2016 Broadway revival turns the song into a monologue for George, which casts him in a much harsher and darker light. It's one thing for 
George to sing about a woman being murdered and how they only recovered one of her legs, the music lends a certain amount of goofiness to the moment, which helps us to digest the moment. But if you simply present the information as dialogue, it makes George look like a maniac. If Amalia had any sense, she would never work with this man again, and she certainly wouldn't consider him as a romantic prospect. What are you going to do? Tell this story to the grandkids? Oh, Grandmama Amalia, do tell us if our Papa Giorgio made you fear for your life in a dimly lit cafe one cold winter evening. She's going to tell, she's going to tell, she's going to tell, she's going to tell. I have trained myself going shelf by shelf And I know every item in the store Every tube, jar, box, bottle, carton, and container Where they are, what they cost, what they're for Although it's something you have never thought about Mr. Marichek, try me You need a man who knows the business inside out Mr. Marichek, try me You need help or I'd have never spoken And why break someone in when I'm already broken. In this emergency, I wouldn't let you down, Mr. Marichek, try me. Oh, I can see by the uncertain way you frown that you've asked yourself, why me? For first-class clerking and conscientious working, Mr. Marichek, why not try me? Want an idea as to how I approached Try Me for the sake of that dinner theater production? Consider this. While delivering the line, and why break someone in when I'm already broken? I adopted the stance of a puppet whose strings have been snipped, locking into position on the word broken. Look, I was sort of left to my own devices when it came to the staging. I don't mean to tell tales out of school, but hey, it is what it is. Remember Nigel Rathbone, the actor who played Arpad for the BBC? His rendition of Try Me is... How do I put this? Scatterbrained? He appears to be flirting with Mr. Marichek a lot, and that only becomes more pronounced once he begins imitating Alona. I have no idea why this kid does an extended impression of Alona. Typically, when Arpad calls for Alona, uh, Miss Ritter, during his hypothetical sales transaction, no one actually expects him to turn into her. The song is meant to showcase Arpad's skill as a sales clerk. What would be the point of camping it up as one of your co-workers? It's a bold choice, certainly, but it wouldn't land anyone a job. What's puzzling about the 1979 BBC version of Try Me is how it includes alternate lyrics, which cannot be heard on any of the recordings I sat with this week. Harpad traditionally sings, For first-class clerking and conscientious working, Mr. Marichek, why not try me? You get it. He sings this line twice, I should say, once near the beginning of the number and then again right at the end. The BBC broadcast replaces these lyrics with, I'll make December a month to remember, and, though I speak sadly, I recommend me highly. In this emergency, I wouldn't let you down, Mr. Marichek. Try me. Oh, I can see by the uncertain way you frown that you've asked yourself, why me? I'll make December a month to remember, Mr. 
I suppose the former substitute is all right, but the latter is a plain-faced dud. Is our pad speaking sadly? Sad is not a quality I would ascribe to this number. Our pad is earnest. He is not sad, BBC. What are you thinking? She loves me, she loves me, true she doesn't show it, how could she, when she doesn't know it, yesterday she loved me, now today she likes me, and tomorrow, tomorrow. Speechless, for I mustn't tell her It's wrong now, but it won't be long now Before my love discovers that she and I are lovers Imagine how surprised she's bound to be She loves me She loves me I love her, isn't that a wonder? I have no idea how anyone sells well, 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 well. I don't know how you sell that. This song is tough. You're out there all by yourself with absolutely no safety net. Are you charming enough to hold the stage for three minutes? Are you sure about that? Double check before you go out there, my fellow actors. I'm not an actor anymore. In a lot of ways, the title song of this week's subject, you like how I caught myself there? This week's subject, the title song of this week's subject, is a lot like the title song from Singing in the Rain. But here's the difference. Rain is brief easy and whimsical, whereas She Loves Me is fueled by a, a percolating fever, a mania. I could not sell this song. Oh, no, no way. I have yet to be charmed by anyone who has performed this song. But to those who would dare try, I wish them the best of luck. Come to think of it, the BBC's Robin Ellis does a terrible job with this number. That guy has about as much joie de vivre as a conservative American ingesting horse paste. Bam, I cannot believe I roasted conservative Americans that hard. Ooh, oh, 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 oh. And seaposts, what can I say? Ah, seaposts, no tears be gay, you know, old friend. I'm in your debt. 
I owe you more than I can possibly repay. I won't forget. Give your wife a little kiss from Kodai. I never met her, but I will by and by. Oh, I hate leaving you, hate leaving your warm, intimate club. It's a small pleasure, but I'll treasure each warm, intimate snub. It's been grand, let me say, and let me say, au revoir, not goodbye. For it's grand, knowing you'll all be working for your friend. absolutely had to feature a bit of grand knowing you. This is Kadai's second number, if you recall me saying that earlier. I wanted to feature it specifically for the line, give your wife a little kiss from Kodai. I've never met her, but I will. Bye and bye. Kodai, are you going to fuck my wife? Are you going to fuck my wife? Is that what you're saying to me? Are you going to fuck my wife? Please don't fuck my wife. I know that you probably know that I sent that letter anonymously. You probably know that. I probably spotted you coming out of Mrs. Marichek's home, and I, <laughs> I, look, I understand that you're mad. Please don't fuck my wife. Please don't fuck my wife. Please don't fuck my wife. That's all I have to say regarding the score for She Loves Me. It is now time to hear from our fine, fine sponsor, 5678 Coffee. Take it away, 5678. It's me, your dear friend, Salad Fingers. I'm so happy to be here to celebrate Halloween with you, my dear friends. Happy Halloween! Perhaps I'm jumping the gun a bit. It's quite early. Halloween is on the 31st. We haven't gotten there yet, have we? What? What's that you say? Halloween has already come and gone by the time this episode is released. Oh, I am filled with a deep sadness. You must understand, my sense of time and place is all over the map. I was vacationing in hell recently. Yes, the fourth circle of hell. And I was begging them for a spot. I said, please, when I die, when I finally shuffle off this accursed mortal coil of mine, can I have a place here in the circle of hell I so do think is my favorite? And they said, no. No, Salad Fingers, no! You're only allowed to visit! You are destined for heaven! And I said, no, God, please! They don't allow rusty spoons! They don't allow me to touch my own eyeballs with my fingers! I like to dip my fingertips, my salad fingertips, in spicy cumin, and I like to touch my greasy eyeballs with the tips of my side fingers so they burn and in heaven you can't 
do those things? God, it was a terrible vacation in hindsight, and now I find that I need a vacation from my vacation. Oh, classic vacation wish. Oh, goodness, I'm crying. I, I am. I'm, I'm crying, but I don't cry tears. No, I, I cry tiny, wriggling rat bladders. Oh, tiny rat bladders falling from my eyes. Oh, but at least this five, six, seven, eight coffee. Isn't that right? They can't take that away from me. And in heaven they'll have five, six, seven, eight coffee, won't they? Yes, they will. Oh, goodness gracious, what a lovely thought. I feel much better. Five, six, seven, eight coffee. You can count on it. You really can. You really can count on it to give you that lift you need when you consider that hell is not your final destination. I don't want to go to fucking heaven. What am I going to have? A little halo? Fucking angel's wings? What if they chop off my salad fingers and they give me average hum? Drum mediocre fingers. Fuck that. No way. I'm going to hell, hell, or high water. Oh, I have to write a letter to Satan. Goodbye. Final thoughts regarding She Loves Me. Oh, I didn't write anything down. I suppose I'll have to improvise. I was surprised. I thought I had a lot more affection for She Loves Me than I wound up having this week. Maybe it's because I, I don't know, maybe I listened to one too many cast albums. Maybe I, <laughs> I don't know, maybe I got too deep. Maybe I got in too deep. I don't know. Maybe I should have. No, no, we have to be, we have to be forward thinking when it comes to our coverage. We have to try and cover as much ground as possible because these shows only get one episode apiece. Am I right? Look, I was just disappointed by all of the bald, fat, and old jokes. And to be honest, a lot of this music goes on a little bit too long. There is just too much music in this musical. I didn't go into this, but Where's My Shoe is that it's a song that absolutely needs to be cut. I don't envy anyone who has to try and sell that song. There is a lot of physicality that goes into that. You have to be so precise with your vocals, and I don't think the results are worth it. All of the work that goes into the song Where's My Shoe? It's not a funny song. It's not a funny song. There is one joke that you have to carry for three fucking minutes. There are no turns. There are no developments or evolutions in the comedy, and it's just so frustrating. So in 1964, the winner of the Tony Award for Best Musical was Hello, Dolly. We've talked about her before. And the additional nominees were Funny Girl, we've talked about Funny Girl, and High Spirits. Ah, that's the only show from this season of nominees we have not talked about yet. We will talk about High Spirits at some point in the future. Now, the question is, should Hello Dolly keep its medallion for Best Musical, or should we give it to She Loves Me, or Funny Girl, or High Spirits? Well, I don't know anything about High Spirits, and so ultimately I'm going to let Hello Dolly keep its medallion. I believe that's what we said during our Funny Girl episode. I hope we said that. Again, I do like to be consistent, but that's what I say. 
Hello Dolly gets to keep her medallion. It is now time to rank She Loves Me against all of the other musicals we have talked about here on the podcast. As always, if you would like to see this complete ranking of ours, go to twitter.com slash musicalmanpod. From there, you can access our link tree. Go to our spreadsheet. It's on the second tab of that lovely Google spreadsheet. The full ranking, I should say. Okay, so where does She Loves Me fall? Where does She Loves Me fall on this ranking? I'm going to place it at number 50. Number 50 between Steel Pier at number 49 and A Year with Frog and Toad at number 51. Did I expect it to fall that low? I did not. And yet, fall there it did. Fall there it did. As far as show-related ephemera is concerned, we begin with a trailer for the 1940 Ernst Lubitsch film The Shop Around the Corner, as led by the completely magnificent Frank Morgan. Let's play that trailer now. There you are. Ladies and gentlemen, permit me to introduce myself. I uh, I am Mr. Matuchek of Matuchek and Company, the shop around the corner. <laughs> now, if you'll be kind enough to take a look at the window, you'll see that we sell some very nice things. Of course, my shop may be a little far away for some of you. It's, uh, it's in Budapest, Hungary, just around the corner from Balta Street. But I'm sure that the bargains you get here will more than make your trip worthwhile. It's, uh, it's the kind of a shop where you get a 350 value for 348. Oh, <laughs> I thought you were a customer. <laughs> I should have known better. <laughs> However, every disappointment has its bright side. Ladies and gentlemen, I want you to meet Ernst Lubitsch, our director. Uh, the man who gave you a garbo in Ninochka who made you laugh and who now gives you a Morgan who makes you laugh. I hope. Yes, I hope so too, in the shop around the corner. For those who have not seen this trailer in full, it begins with the following on-screen text. Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer presents Coming Events Cast Their Shadows. Coming attractions eat your heart out. My God, we should have more trailers begin with that phrase. Coming events cast their shadows. Oh, my goodness. The YouTube upload of the 1979 BBC broadcast is followed by an interview with Barbara Cook, Jerry Bach, and Sheldon Harnock. Said interview takes place in Bach's apartment and is led by a phenomenally weird gentleman by the name of Craig Zidane. This is how Zidane introduces the segment. To be clear, we have removed not one second of dead air from this intro. We are here in Sheldon Harnick's apartment with composer Jerry Bach, lyricist Sheldon Harnick, and star Barbara Cook discussing the Broadway musical She Loves Me, a show that opened in New York on April 23, 1963, to generally favorable notices. It ran 302 performances and was based on Shop Around the Corner, Ernst Lubitsch's 1940s MGN film, which itself was based on a Hungarian play by Miklos Laszlo. In discussing She Loves Me, I think we have to talk about the fact that it is a cult musical, one of those very strange phenomenons in the musical theater that occurs uh, once every so often, a show that does not run a tremendously long time, but is very popular 
a show that people want to always revive and always want to see and always want to hear the songs from. What is a cult musical? Yikes! You get the sense Bach, Harnick, and Cook have been taken hostage by Zidane, and they simply don't know it yet. Here's another example of Zidane's crackerjack line of questioning. Barbara, do you remember the first call that you got about She Loves Me? You mean about auditioning? Yeah. No. Barbara, do you remember the call? No, I do not. And that's exactly the sort of intense, probing journalism you can expect from Craig Zidane, ace reporter. The interview is not a complete waste of time, I should say. Cook reveals she read with Anthony Perkins of psycho fame, Norman Bates himself, along with about a thousand other men while they were trying to cast the role of George, which is somewhat interesting, I suppose. We are also told Cook would regularly sit with Bach and Harnick and roast people to hell if they gave a bad audition. What the fuck? Bach and Harnick describe Cook as having a peppery tongue, quote-unquote, but make no mistake, she was talking shit. I will now describe and or recreate the commercials and station promos found between Acts 1 and 2 of the BBC broadcast. Patty, Benny, do we think we should play the original audio now or wait until after I have described everything? What do you... I, I could go either way, so... Play it after? All right, okay, we're gonna play it after. So perfect, I'm gonna describe all of this shit to you right now. So first we get this stark black and white logo for the Exxon Corporation, and we have a voiceover say, funding for this program was provided by a grant from Exxon Corporation by this station and other public television stations. We then get a weird scrapbook. It's this weird visual, it looks like a scrapbook from a 90s revival of Greece, and <laughs> It's very strange. Gemma Craven's photo is featured prominently in this little splashback, little scrapbook visual that we have. And we hear a voiceover say, Act two of She Loves Me will begin in less than one minute. First, this look at tonight's masterpiece theater. Smash cut, a woman standing at a desk. She has a maid standing next to her and they are addressing a man whose face we cannot see. And the woman lifts a piece of paper and she says, you want me to spell it out for you? Someone's been writing me poems, love poems. And then the voiceover guy says, Louisa conspires with her secret admirer this week on the Duchess of Duke Street. And then we cut to a restaurant. It looks a lot like the Cafe Imperial, actually. And there is a woman sitting at a table in this restaurant. She's sitting across from a man, and she's looking off in the distance, and she says, hmm, those two beggars are still looking at us. And the guy who is sitting across from her says, uh, let's play a trick on them. <laughs> This show looks so dumb and boring, and the voiceover guy wraps it up by saying, Don't miss The Duchess of Duke Street tonight on Masterpiece Theater. Tonight at 9 o'clock. They say tonight twice. And then finally, we get this shot of Christmas decorations, and we hear <laughs> we hear a tune right out of a leather musical cigarette box. This is followed by the most depressed delivery I've ever heard in my life. This poor man says the following in this way. I'm going to try my best to recreate it. He says, season's greetings from 13. 
Okay, now that I have described all of that to you, I want to play the original audio. This is one of the most indulgent show-related ephemera segments we have ever produced. I do not care. Let us hear the original audio now. Funding for this program was provided by a grant from Exxon Corporation by this station and other public television stations. Act two of She Loves Me will begin in less than one minute. First, this look at tonight's Masterpiece Theater. Louisa conspires oh. with her secret Jules. admirer this week Have on the Duchess of Duke Street. Mm, those crazy beggars still looking at us. It's Patrick on them. Don't miss the Duchess of Duke Street this week on Masterpiece Theater. Tonight at 9 o'clock. What do you think? Did I do a good job? I don't know. To determine which show we discuss next, we'll need to take a ride on the musical carousel, otherwise known as the random number generator I named after that classic Rogers and Hammerstein show. Lights, camera, ouch! Everyone ready? Then away we go! So, the subject of our next main feed episode, which will drop, that episode, I should say, will drop on Wednesday, November 17th. This is a 1960 co-winner of the Tony Award for Best Musical. It ran for 1,443 performances. Ah, uh, do you know what it was? That's right, it was a tie. Yes, you heard me correct. You know it. You know what it is. It's the sound of music. Oh, my God. This is an enormous subject. There is so much to talk about. I have been prepping for this episode for a very long time, listeners. You have no fucking clue. We are going to go fucking crazy when it comes to this subject because there are so many albums, there's a movie, there are two live versions. Oh, it's going to be an epic episode. And again, that episode will drop on November 17th. Go to patreon.com slash musicalmanpod to find out how you can support the show financially. As a reminder, 100% of every monthly payout is donated to the Okra Project. We do not keep one cent. No, no, no. All of it goes to the Okra Project. You can donate one, three, five, or ten dollars a month. If you donate one dollar a month, you get Monday early access to all of our main feed episodes while everyone else is waiting until Wednesday. You're going to have those main feed episodes on Monday morning. Uh, you'll feel so special. You'll also get a verbal shout-out each and every week. Thank you for donating at least $1 a month. Aaron, Jason, Jack, Vitor, Sydney, Katie, Elena, Anton, Ross, HJG, Jared, Eli, David, Dave, Christopher, Neil, Brian, Robin, Liz, Carrie, Maddie, Jonathan, Marcus, Rob, Shauna, Shiante, Roberto, Jordan, Ashley, Chris, JC, Jenna, Aaron, Lily, Haley, Brandon, Brad, Matt, Zach, and Marisol. You also get 16 bonus episodes regarding the 73rd 
annual Tony Awards, a trailer review for the film Cats, ABC's The Little Mermaid Live, a full review of the film Cats, Emma, the stage musical Emma, we talk about that. We talk about Take Me to the World, a Sondheim 90th birthday celebration, Hamilton via Disney+, Plus. Documentary Now, original cast album, Co-op, John Mulaney and the Sack Lunch Bunch, Jingle Jangle, A Christmas Journey, Dolly Parton's Christmas on the Square, Arlo the Alligator Boy, West Side Story, we talk about the trailer for Steven Spielberg's West Side Story, but also Vivo, the Tony Awards present Broadway's Back, and Diana. You get season one, 12 episodes of Radio Boy, a special series for which I check in with myself via the non-musical theater songs that make me feel more like myself, and finally you get access to all 12 episodes of M3, the movie musical man. This is a series for which we watch trilogies of movie musicals that are tied by a common theme. And again, all 12 episodes are now available. We just wrapped our third batch of episodes. A fourth batch will be premiering, I believe, at some point in 2022. No hard return date just yet, but for the time being, you can listen to those 12 episodes. If you donate $3 a month, you get everything I've already described, plus a musical shout-out, a special musical shout-out. In the style of a character, actor, or composer of your choosing, you get all 10 episodes of Wildcats Everywhere, the high school musical podcast, and a special one-off episode all about season one of Julie and the Phantoms. Will they produce a second season? I don't know. $5 a month will get you everything I've already described, plus you get to stop the musical carousel and determine what show I discuss on the podcast, so long as we have not already talked about it. And it was a show that was nominated for the Tony Award for Best Musical. Those are the only stipulations. You get seasons one and two, that's 24 episodes, of All I Ask of You, an advice show hosted by the Phantom of the Opera. You get access to my Broadway in Chicago review series, which is actually returning on November 10th. I'm going to be talking about Paradise Square. And finally, you get volumes one and two of Shout About It. These are collections of five, six, seven, eight coffee ads and musical shoutouts from the first 50 episodes. If you donate $10 a month, you get everything I've already described, plus exclusive announcements regarding future subjects of the main feed. Season one, that's 12 episodes of The Snub Club, a series all about Broadway musicals that were not nominated for the Tony Award for Best Musical, and returning in February 2022, the next six episodes of Turn It Off, a series dedicated to off-Broadway musicals. We've already produced six episodes. Emojiland, Soft Power, The Fantastics, We Are the Tigers, Bat Boy, and A Strange Loop were the subjects of those six episodes, and as I said, we're releasing six more. You know it, baby. Coming back in February of next year. If you're listening to the show via Apple Podcasts or Podchaser, please take a moment to write a five-star review. We have not had a five-star review since September, I believe, early September. Please, 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 this is one of the few ways that you can show support for the show. It is a vital and important thing to do. So please, if you have not already done so, write a five-star review. Please, I am asking you very nicely. We want 65-star reviews. We have a total of 51, and when we get to 60 five-star reviews, I will record and release that legendary episode about Disney's Zombies franchise that will be released via the main feed. Ooh, we've been talking about that for a million years. Will it ever be produced? I don't know. This show is also available to stream via Spotify, Stitcher, Audible, or Podbean. That's musicalmanpod.podbean.com if you need streaming options. Follow us on Twitter at musicalmanpod and email me at musicalmanpod at gmail.com. Thanks as always to Patty and Benny. Oh, I love you, Patty and Benny. Thank you to Alex Green for our beautiful logo. And thank 
thank you to Zach Little for our fabulous intro and outro music. Oh, well, wait. You know what that sound means? Yes, just when the fun is starting comes the time for parting. Oh, well, we'll catch up some other time, specifically on the next episode of The Musical Man. So long, farewell, off Vidashen, and good night. I guess your love for She Loves Me is clear since you're still singing those songs today. No. This is how Zidane introduces the segment. To be clear... Uh, oh!